There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the do I. Hello and welcome to the Power Chord Hour podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Anthony Merchant. Thank you so much for checking out this week's podcast. And uh, I'm very excited. You know, we have had uh, guests here the past few weeks, and I've been I've been so stoked on this one since I reached out to him, and I was so happy he was down to do it. If you heard a few weeks ago, I did an album anniversary interview with uh, Joe Rio of Hidden in Plain View for the 15th anniversary of uh, Life and Dreaming. And I love doing uh, anniversary interviews like that. It's not the first one I've ever done. I did a few. Uh, actually, you know what's funny about that? One of the very first interviews I ever did was for an album anniversary. Actually, Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind, and maybe I'll put it on here sometime, back in 2017, uh, had to be like the fourth interview I ever did in my entire life. And uh, I was over at a uh, Top 40 station I was working at the time. And uh, one day I came in. It was the coolest thing. My, my manager came in. And she's like, hey, you want to interview Stephen Jenkins, the singer of Third Eye Blind, tomorrow? And I'm like, yes, like, of course. <laughs> so it's like, like, why would I not? You know, I, I love Third Eye Blind. Like, of course I want to interview him. And, uh, yeah, that was for the promotion of they, they were going on tour doing the uh, self-titled record front to back. Uh, the 20-year anniversary, and then they like did a did a reissue of that record and everything. And uh, actually, yeah, that was one of the first interviews I ever did. I think, like I said, like fourth or fifth, I believe. But uh, yeah, so I, I've always loved doing those. And and this one, this one's fun. That one was more a uh, straight up like radio promotion thing where like you know they call in like he calls a bunch of radio stations like one day for like 2 hours and you get like 10 minutes with them so i mean i you know definitely not like an in-depth interview or anything like that but it is funny cuz one of the first interviews i ever did was kind of a retrospective you know of a, of a record but anyways i love doing these and on the podcast i really do cuz i get to go more in depth than usual and uh, this week if you are a fan of the hidden plain view one i think you're going to like this one because tonight I am talking tonight or today. It's weird on here. It's whenever you're listening to this. But whenever you are listening to this, I'm talking to Ben Jorgensen, the uh, frontman of Armor for Sleep, who's a fan favorite record. I, I would say most people's favorite album of theirs, What to Do When You Are Dead, that turns 15 this year, came back or came out back in 2005 on uh, Equal Vision Records. And it, it's crazy, you know, like with Hidden in Plain View, like I was telling Joe, I, uh, you know, I, I didn't discover them until like, you know, 2012, 2013, I probably heard Life and Dreaming for the first time, Where uh, whereas Armor for Sleep, I can still remember back in 05, this is funny, you know, I remember the Car Underwater video obviously a lot on Fuse, but before even that, the first thing I remember is the commercial. Hit me up if you remember this, I, and I know sometimes there's things that I remember and then I can never find. Um, I, I'm trying, I'm not going to get sidetracked, but I was, I was just thinking about this the other day. I swear that Fallout Boy once played on Mad TV. I swear they were a live guest, but when I look it up, I can find nothing. So I just think it was a figment of my imagination. 
some I probably saw some other pop punk band play on Mad TV in like 2004 or five that was not Fallout Boy, but somewhere in my mind I just thought it was. Now with this Armor for Sleep commercial, I wanted to go back and look for it because I'm like I swear I remember Car Underwater, the chorus of it, that part of the music video being in a commercial for Equal Vision Records. It was like that and another band, but I did find it, so I was not crazy. But let me know if you remember that commercial at all. I, I really like that. I remember that. And uh, kind of along the same lines, and I've never found this one, but I swear I remember this as well. Hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. If you were back in those Fuse days, uh, some, some of my favorite days that I, I found so many bands that way around this era in 2005. But the other one I remember is Hawthorne Heights having Ohio's for Lovers in a cell phone ringtone commercial. And I swear I remember that. I've never been able to find it online, but I swear that was a thing on Fuse. It was a, it was a commercial for all the hot new ringtones you could buy for your Razor. I don't even know if the Razor was out yet, but... Uh, yeah, one of them one of them was Ohio's for Lovers and it played like for a second like the music video. That's another commercial I remember on Fuse. But anyway, my earliest memory of Armor for Sleep would be that Car Underwater commercial and uh, then obviously I started seeing the whole video and uh, you know, so so that's so big for me, you know, to do this. It it, it was so cool to talk to Ben cuz I just look back at that and it's like my earliest memories you know, I never, I was never really an MTV person. I, uh, you know, I guess I saw TRL here and there, but I was never one of those people who, it just, that was never a thing for me. You know, MTV never had that, had that uh, mark on me that I feel like it did for a lot of people. For me, it was Fuse. And I think a lot of people my age probably had that though too. Around 2004, 2005, like so many of the bands that I got into were from Fuse. And I mean, Armor for Sleep being one of the first ones that I can remember and, you know, so so just absolutely huge for me. And I still love this stuff. You know, it, it's not like sometimes you hear people like, oh, like, you know, 12 year old me would be so stoked if they knew I was like talking to so and so. And it's like, yeah, but I still love Armor for Sleep like this. This record, like what to what to do when you are dead is like I, I probably like it more than I did even back then. So it's like, you know, it's not even like that. It's like this stuff is so timeless. It's like I'm still like present day me was so stoked to do this. You know, I, I still love that record and I love Armor for Sleep. I think they're very underrated. And uh, so this was really fun. Got to go really in depth on what to do when you were dead and a whole lot more. So uh, we're going to get into that right now. I'm going to I'm going to shut up here and let you hear the interview that you are here to uh, hear. And I do hope you enjoy it. And uh, don't forget to follow us at Power Chord Hour on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud. Obviously got the radio show on 107.9 WRFA in Jamestown, New York, every Friday night at 10 Eastern. And yeah, like I said, hit me up, PowerCordHour at gmail.com. If you remember that Armor for Sleep commercial or the uh, the Ohio is for Lovers ringtone commercial, I also want to let me know about that. Um, and I've, sometime i got to have JT from Hawthorne Heights on here, and I'm going to ask him about it because I don't think I ever have. But I know that was real. I think the Fallout Boy on Mad TV was a figment of my imagination, but I swear the, uh, the Hawthorne Heights ringtone commercial was real. And uh, I, I have confirmed that the Armor for Sleep commercial was real, which I think is awesome. But uh, anyways, here's my interview with Ben Jorgensen talking 15 years of what to do when you are dead right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, we're talking to Ben Jorgensen, the front man of Armor for Sleep, and the band's sophomore record and fan favorite, What to Do When You Were Dead, turns 15 this year, and the band is celebrating with a reunion tour and a vinyl reissue. We're going to talk all about that, get into the making of the record and all that good stuff. Ben, how are you tonight? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. So I've been excited for this, you know, before we get into the record, 
kind of going back a little further to the beginning of Armor for Sleep, I know before Armor, you did play drums in a band, Random Task. Was Armor for mm-hmm. Sleep, the, the uh, you played drums in that, right? Correct, yeah. Okay, so for Armor for Sleep, I mean, was that the very first band that you were singing and playing guitar in? 100%, yeah. So what happened is um, Random Task was um, a band that my best friends and I started when we were in sixth grade. And then when we got to high school in ninth grade, um, we uh, we teamed up with this guy, Matt, who had become the singer of our band. And all throughout high school, we played shows all around New Jersey. And then um, by the time we were seniors in high school, I had uh, picked up the guitar um, because my bandmates would leave their instruments in my mom's basement um, in between practices. And so I taught myself how to play guitar. And by the end of that band, when I was a senior in high school, I started getting really into songwriting. Um, so for our last album that we put out as a band, Random Task, um, uh, I actually wound up writing a lot of the songs um, lyrically and musically. And so, uh, but I had never actually sang um, the songs myself. So when I started Armor for Sleep, which was um, after directly after my senior year in high school, yeah, that was the first time I had ever um sang on the songs that I had written. So, you know, like you said, you were kind of uh, teaching yourself guitar. Like, how did you start? Was it mostly like power chords and just kind of playing along to, you know, like different bands and stuff? Yeah, I I would mess around at first. And then in high school, I got super into, um, since I couldn't uh, like read music and I never had a, a proper guitar lesson, I actually found a bunch of guitar tab websites online. And I remember at the time I was super into um, OK Computer by Radiohead, and I really wanted to um, figure out how to play that. So I found a bunch of websites that had the tab. And basically, Guitar Tab, for people who don't know, is like you take this finger, you put it here, <laughs> you take this finger. You know, it's like it's almost, you know, like a, a picture version of where to put your fingers on a guitar so you don't have to know anything about it. And, and I kind of just fumbled my way through it that way and, and learned what I needed to learn. And was that was that weird at all when you did transition? Like, like were you hesitant at all when you were starting doing the songs for Armor for Sleep? Were you like, like even at that point, if you started writing the songs, and you said you hadn't like really sang yet, like was that? Mm. Were you nervous at all, like going like I'm going from drums to then going front and center with you know what I'm doing now? Totally, yeah. I was uh, definitely felt a little weird about it, um, but. Um, you know, I, I guess I didn't anticipate the full trajectory that the band would take. You know, like the first, the first Armor demo um, I made, um, I kind of like loosely started like distributing and getting it out there. But the uh, response I got was pretty immediate. You know, like I don't think I was personally ready for it at that <laughs> time. Um, but that kind of dictated what happened. You know, like I don't think in my head I had planned for. Um, you know what was going to happen as a band after making the first demo but it just so happened that like i guess the you know the time and music was right for that kind of thing and the people that i knew in that scene of music were looking for that thing so it kind of worked out was the was the uh, demos i mean are they pretty true to what people know from the armor for sleep sound i mean were they were they anything that yeah. were, were they about the same they were, yeah, they were 100% the same. Actually, um, not to skip ahead too much, but um, uh, on the 
uh, the 15-year anniversary edition of What to Do When You Are Dead. Um, It's like a double LP. And on the second LP, we actually are including a bunch of like early demos. So yeah, so the the first demo I did was um, two songs. It was Dream to Make Believe and Slip Like Space, which is the last song um, on our first record, which is called Dream to Make Believe. And it was just me playing all the instruments. And it just, it sounds just like a slightly worse version of the songs that wound up on the album. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it just basically sounds like an early version of that. How, uh, how long after you started writing songs for Armor for Sleep did you start looking for uh, other band members? Um, so I recorded the demo with those two songs in August of 2001. And... I started looking for band members probably in like September or October of 2001. Um, And I got Anthony in the band who's been in the band ever since. And these other two guys named Paul and AJ were in the band for a little bit. Uh, We did some more demos with them. And then, um, so all of us were in place um, by the time the summer rolled around, which was summer of 2002. And that's when we flew to LA to record our, our first album. And when we were in LA recording it, we realized like in the studio that it wasn't going to work out with Paul and AJ. So Anthony and I uh, finished tracking that record and we basically, um, Gabe, who was the singer of the band Midtown at the time was kind of like our manager and helping us out. And he was like, Hey, when you guys come home from recording, we're leaving on tour and we'd love for you guys to open up for us. And there's this other small band from Long Island called Taking Back Sunday who are opening up the tour too. And, um, but we had just basically let Paul and AJ go and we were going to come home from LA and have like four days before this tour of Midtown, which was insane because we had never done anything like that. So we called our friends Nash and TJ, who we knew from another band in New Jersey. And we were like, Hey, we're coming back from LA. And then in four days, we're supposed to go on tour with Midtown. Can you learn, you know, <laughs> these songs? And so they were like, yeah. So we practiced for like two days. And then we did our first tour, um, you know, after having been a band for like a total of four days, pretty much. Wow. So that, that's crazy how much it sounds like Armor for Sleep then escalated from you. Because it sounds like it started with a few demos to a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it's like, all right, now we got to get a band, an actual band together. And then you, all of a sudden you're touring with Midtown. That's uh, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's a that's a that's really neat. So, I mean, all this happens then within like. A year of the band, then would you say all together? Then from like getting you know the demos yeah. and having them. I wow. mean, even kind of less than a year, but yeah, pretty much. That's crazy. I mean that that's really yeah. neat. How how long after uh, touring then did you start thinking of doing Dream to Make Believe? Were you were you writing right after that tour? Or did you guys tour a little more before you? You mean started? what to do when you were dead? Oh no! Well, no, no, the first record. Oh. Um, so yeah, so in that first year when we were doing the demos, we were just playing shows around New Jersey and, um, I mean, I guess when we had enough songs, like, like I said, Gabe was our manager and and he was like, you know, you guys should, uh, should think about doing a full length. And then I, I think he had the idea of us going to LA to record with, um, this guy Ariel Reichshad that he knew who used to be the singer of a, a, a ska band called the hippos. I love the hippos. Um, yeah, the hippos were great. And um, so I was like, I was like, Gabe, I've never heard. I, I was like, I like the hippos, but like, I don't know who this dude Ariel is. And he was like, no, he's a really talented guy. He wants to start producing records. Anyway, so he wound up producing Dream to Make Believe. And he has since gone on to be one of the biggest producers, like in the music industry. He's produced um, 
Usher and Madonna and uh, all the Vampire Weekend stuff. He's like a massive producer. It's crazy um, to think that the front man of the hippos do it doing that yeah. now. That that's amazing, yes. you know. Yeah, yeah, he's a really cool guy. But you know, so so that's kind of interesting. And then dream to make believe too. I mean, what to do when you were dead? Obviously, you know, you have the concept to it. But there was also there was a theme and concept to dream to make believe as well. Correct? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it was a little bit more of a loose a loose fitting concept. I think I think that's just more of. Um, like how I naturally write, like it wasn't, um, I, I just think there are themes that work throughout it, but maybe like kind of more of an unintentional themed record than what to do when you were dead, which was definitely like a very, um, planned out and themed record from the beginning. So, you know, like, like for that, the thing that always interests me, like I was thinking about this too, before the interview, I feel like when you start thinking about it, like, I mean, you were very young and I don't feel like a lot of young bands kind of have that. Like, I don't think they're ready to make a concept record and including in the scene. I don't think like a lot of bands like the bands that, you you know, toured with and stuff did it that young. You know, what kind of influenced you or made you like like want to do that? What was it that made you want to write a concept record? You know, I think it was very ambitious for a young band and ended up working out great. But, you know, yeah, like, what, like what made you want to do it, though? Um. I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of friends that, you know, also had eclectic tastes growing up. Um, I was super into the scene and super into, um, you know, bands that were coming up around us like Thursday and Saves the Day. And, you know, my background, I started going to shows when I was in seventh or eighth grade and it was all like hardcore shows. So I was super into the scene. But at the same time, I really loved um, Radiohead. Like, OK, Computer was one of my favorite albums ever. Um, I really loved Pink Floyd, like Dark Side of the Moon. And, you know, I just think um, I thought those things, those albums were really special. And uh, I don't know, maybe maybe my friends who were in bands exclusively exclusively from the scene kind of like didn't, um, you know, accept those kind of influences into their, um, you know, musical catalog but I certainly was a fan of those kind of records. I, ju I just thought it was, it was really cool when, you know, something was more than just a collection of songs. Um, I just always connected to um, everything that I heard that had some kind of deeper connection. I like that. And I mean, it sounds like too, I feel like a, the, the other part of that, like you were saying, like, you, you know, like other, other people in bands, like maybe not accepting those influences. The thing is, is I feel like a lot of people at that age are kind of stubborn and won't accept it. Like Pink Floyd and all those other bands are actually mm -hmm. good where it's like, you didn't, you know, you didn't disown that. You're kind of like, you know, we can, we can be this kind of band, but it's like, Hey, we also like, you know, we like other things, you know, we right. don't just like one genre. So I think that's interesting. Exactly. And you know, like when it, when it comes to having a concept for a record, when you started writing, do you feel like that makes it easier when you kind of have a theme to stick to? Or like when you were doing uh, What to Do When You Were Dead, did you ever feel confined? Like, was there ever a point where you're like, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm almost kind of written myself into a corner here? Sure. Yeah. No, um, it depends how you want to look at it. You know, like you can definitely wake up one day and um, look at it that way. For Like I always bring I bring this up as an example when I'm talking to people about writing songs like you can of course make whatever piece of music you want to make, but technically a song, what makes a song work as a song is that it has some kind of chorus that repeats. And usually it has some kind of bridge after the first couple repetitions of the chorus 
um, to give people like a refresher so they don't hear the chorus five million times. But in general, a song needs a chorus that repeats some kind. You know what I mean? And yeah. when writing a song, you could view that as limiting, but it can also be um, freeing because you're, you know, you're giving yourself these parameters and in some ways it unlocks your creativity because, um, you know, in, instead of just thinking of every random thing, you have these parameters that you have to think inside of. And, uh, you know, just also like a haiku, it's a super limited syllable pattern of a poem, but in some ways that forces or that, that yields the most creative results, you know, and, and almost the best haikus are even more creative than just a poem with 8 million words because you have to be creative creative about how you're going to fit within those parameters. So I, I thought writing a concept album about that specific idea was um, a good experiment. And it definitely, for me, um, freed me up creatively to think of cool ways to, um, you know, get, get the message across or express, express myself and express ourselves through that medium. I like I like the way that you that you use parameters too because that does for like writing songs you're right because if you don't have some kind of parameter or kind of something to go off of then yeah there's no real quality control you're just kind of you yeah. you can just kind of write anything so I, I kind of like that because exactly. yeah parameters do you you do need those to uh, some extent and yes. you know talking about the concepts and the themes of what to do when you were dead I feel like most people or fans probably know you know kind of written from the perspective of someone dead. But do you kind of want to explain a little more, like in your own words, kind of, you know, I mean, you, you wrote it like, you know, what what is the concept and story behind the record? <laughs> um, I mean, I think you just said it. Yeah. So, basically uh, that. Basically that. Yeah. I mean, the record <laughs> opens up with what seems like a some kind of suicide or someone had had something, um, you know, seems like they, they just went through a death. And, and the rest of the album is them trying to reconnect with um people or i guess in this case specifically one person from their lives and deals a lot with um i guess regret and deals with kind of looking back at a time when things were different and deals with the finality of decisions that we make in our lives and um yeah i think i think ultimately obviously it's more about life and the relationships that we have when we're alive. I don't think anybody thinks this is, you know, a realistic view of what happens after you die. Um, so, it, you know, I mean, I, I like, I like metaphors and I like analogies. And so this, this album, um, I guess I've always viewed it as, you know, a, a metaphor for things that people experience in their lives that have nothing to do with that, that just have to do with relationships. I think something that you guys did really well on this record, you know, that the fact that you can listen to it and the fact that you kind of have a story and a concept there, but also you can go through and just listen to the songs by themselves. And I think mm -hmm. they still work. And there's like, you know, you, you don't need to, you don't need to hear like say the track prior for it to make sense or anything like that. Right. Was that intentional at all? Or is that just how it came out? Like, did you ever think about that when doing it? Like, okay, I, I still want to write this so the songs can stand by themselves. 100%. Yeah, that was definitely a goal um, to have songs that could stand by themselves, yet also completed a larger story. And um, yeah, it was being creative in what's too much of like a song that would stand too much on its own. Like we didn't want to make a song that wouldn't fit in with the story. 
Um, and but also the converse was true. We didn't we didn't want a song that exclusively fit into the story, but that wouldn't be enjoyable to listen to on its own. I think ultimately, you know, as the writer, that that kind of fell on my shoulders to kind of um, figure out a, a nice balance of of those two things. And with the lyrics, I mean, obviously, it's kind of from, you know, a, a character's point of view. But did you when you were writing them, I mean, do you completely would you say you removed yourself completely or were you still kind of, you know, interjecting? Maybe they're not maybe autobiographical songs, but, you know, there's still obviously maybe things in your life. Or, I mean, were you completely writing it like removed? Like this is not, you know, none of this is of your life. This is all from like the perspective of another character. Um, No, I mean, it was it was. like that whole record is uh very personal to me based on um you know uh things that were going on in my life specifically uh uh you know a relationship that i was going through and also how weird my life was um being 20 years old having pretty much said you know that i was gonna go try this music thing and the repercussions that that had in my life. So it was all um, completely personal, almost like behind the mask of this other story. But um, I don't think I would have been able to do it and just like remove myself from the equation. Um, Yeah. And then for, you know, for the record, when you guys did finally go in to record it, did you have most of it written or did you write anything in the studio? Um, so what was interesting about this record is that all of the songs that wound up on the record, um, aside from one, which is a B side, which we also, we released with the record, but that didn't actually like fit in the sequence of the record. Um, those are the only songs that we wrote for this album. So we, we planned it out beforehand, um, to, uh, you know, to a T. So we weren't writing like a bunch of songs and then choosing from them. We wrote, all the songs and then when we went with um machine our producer and talked about the idea and he got on board we actually did pre-production with him um where we recorded all of the songs in order so that we could take a bird's eye view of the sequence of everything and the story and make sure that we were happy with it so i think i think a couple months before we actually went into the studio for real with him we had done like a mock-up of the whole um, album uh, from our rehearsal space, um, you know, from beginning to end. How did you like recording like that? Because that is kind of unconventional, like to kind of record the songs in the sequence of the record. Like, did you like recording it that way? Yeah, I loved it. In fact, that's my preferred way to do it. And um, I would recommend that to all other bands. I mean, I, I, you know, everyone works in different ways, but kind of the formula of just like writing a million songs and then choosing which will fit on the album. Uh, I don't know. For me personally, I feel like that's a recipe for a disjointed batch of songs where, you know, uh, I guess, you know, the way we did things, there's there's a certain focus to the sound of all the songs because they were written with like one mission in mind. And um I feel like when I've heard bands do similar things where they where they write specifically for one album instead of a mishmash, it definitely sounds more cohesive to my ears, at least. No, I, I would agree. There's a lot of times when, you know, a band will come out of a studio and say we have like a double or triple album. And sometimes yeah. that's not good. <laughs> that doesn't right. you know, there, there's not always there's not always quality to that. So, yeah, I, I 
it's interesting you recorded that way, but yeah, that like the way you explain it, that sounds like that would be a uh, a good way to record. And you did mention your producer machine on there. I gotta oh. say, I mean, th- I I love this record, but I've been listening to it a lot lately. And what I love about it, the production on it is timeless in the way that it doesn't sound like a certain era. You don't listen to it and, and go, oh, I can pinpoint the year that came out. It's very timeless. Yeah. I feel like the way it's produced. I mean, a big, in a lot of ways, a very big rock record. I think the guitars sound huge. I think there's a full sound. When you went in, I mean, is that another thing? You're kind of talking about how you had a lot of this planned out. When you like, when you went into the studio, did you always kind of have that vision of like, all right, this is going to be, we want this to sound really big, we want to sound massive, or is that something that you kind of figured out once you started working with Machine and you kind of showed them what you had, and that's kind of you know what you what you guys came to. You know the conclusion of like this is what it's going to sound best on the record. Um, yeah, so Machine was an interesting choice because I don't think he was a little bit outside our realm of knowledge of producers. Like we were so embedded in the scene that the guys we knew that I think we initially wanted to go with were the guys that basically recorded every other, you know band that sounded like us. And Machine was a little bit on the outside. Like the, the record he had done, most recently before us was a a lamb of god record which is um you know obviously a different flavor than us oh yeah um and he just he had all these different kind of influences that at first we were like is this the right guy because you know he wasn't as embedded in the scene and he didn't have a same like he didn't fall back on the same sounds that i think wound up now kind of like dating um that scene a little bit um but in the end the fact that he came from such a different space i think i think helped um the record stand out a little bit sonically uh but i think machine's biggest contribution um was the vision that he had in doing the record as a um like it's a cohesive thing i feel like other producers would have been like oh cool yeah that's a cool idea let's just track everything. But machine was super into the idea of combining elements, you know, of like, you know, dark side of the moon, like we talked about and all these like slightly like trippier kind of things. Um, and he really wanted to take the ball and like run with that. And uh, I think that was, um, you know, ultimately what I, one of the things that made this record special. I love, I mean, I love the guitars on it. I think they sound huge. What was some of the gear that you used? Like, what were some of the guitars and amps you played on that record? Um, I know amp-wise, we used a Bogner for um, a bunch of the main rhythm guitars. We were also using, I think, I think it was a Bogner combined with a dual rectifier and probably my JCM 900 head for all like the gear nerds out there i play i play a 900 i love 900s sweet yeah they're so good i don't know where my 900 is now i think it's been lost (laughs) gotta get yourself um, a new one i know um and guitar wise what were we doing i think i think we're pretty much either on our um we had a bunch of telecaster deluxes so it's like telecasters but they have the humbucker pickups so you kind of get a little bit of that fender twang, but also like the beefiness that's in a lot of like Gibsons. And then I believe we had a Gibson or two floating around there as well. Nice. No, very, very nice uh, gear in there. That's uh, yeah. really good stuff. 
How about like, you know, for the songs on the record, which one would you say changed the most from the demos? Like on from what from on that record, like like what changed drastically the most from when you first wrote it? Good question. Um I would say probably Basement Ghost Singing, I think was a song that we had that was based off of um a riff that i'd been messing around with using um a line six delay pedal that's kind of like that um stereo delay sound in it and um we had we had the song but machine had this idea of taking that and having that song be like one of the more like production oriented tracks on the record so he kind of was a big proponent proponent of doing these like uh looped um uh kind of like acidy drum parts playing in the verses almost like an, an electronic an electro feel and i just think that was something that was unexpected um that was not unwelcome at all um but i don't think we saw that song going in that like kind of like trippy of a direction but i gotta say it turned out to be like uh, one of my favorite songs on the record um and you know all that production stuff is 100 percent machine and the band definitely got some uh, radio airplay. Your videos got played on oh. Fuse and MTV. I mean, I, I still remember uh, seeing Car Underwater for the first time on Fuse. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you either heard the band on the radio or saw one of your videos on TV? Um, I don't. I don't remember the exact time, but I remember um, seeing uh, a bunch of stuff on MTV. Uh, I guess it was MTV Two at the time, um, and. Uh, it was just nuts. It was like just a whole different level for us. And um, yeah, it was just really, it was really interesting. Was all of this um, pretty like, like new for you? Like as far as, as far as random task goes, I mean, it sounds like mm-hmm. you were more like a local band. Like, I mean, so was all of this mm-hmm. pretty new, like going touring, touring around the country outside of Jersey and, you know, I mean, obviously getting some radio play and like video, you know, probably even doing music videos and stuff. Was this the first time then? Totally. Yeah. Um, the one caveat I will say is that, um, a lot changed in a few years. And when we were in random tasks, we were all being heavily influenced by these bands. Like, uh, I mentioned before, like saves the day and, and Thursday were two bands from New Jersey that, uh, random task in high school looked up to and we loved. And there were all these, uh, quote unquote, emo bands, coming out that would uh come and tour through new jersey that we all loved and looking back on it now a lot of other uh people my age around the country were also being influenced by them so by the time that armor for sleep came around and we did uh one record and then once we did what to do and you were dead mtv was a possibility in the scene because the scene had been blowing up so much so it's not like it's not like random task ever could have gotten there at the time because um it just the scene wasn't bubbling over to the same extent that it was once armor for sleep you know had gotten started and so there really was this kind of like clamoring from major labels to kind of like cash in on the scene and eventually they did with bands like you know my chem and fallout boy who you know came from the same exact place that armor for sleep did but they managed to obviously like you know break over into the mainstream 
And on the on the subject of music videos, you know, you guys did three of them for what to do when you were dead. Is there one that you enjoyed making the most? Um, no, no, I, I, I hated doing videos. Okay, yeah. this is then this is like, why I ask yeah. this because you either get when I ask people this either their fond memories or music videos are the worst damn thing to make. I always hear one or the other. Oh, they suck so much. Because <laughs> here's the thing, like. They suck for me, like, playing live shows, I had to really understand what that was because I always used to feel like such a phony on stage performing. You know, I, like, I just felt like it was so, like, arrogant to be up there and be, like, rocking out because, like, if I didn't feel like that at the time, I just felt like it was, like, arrogant. And obviously that's a really weird perspective to have. <clears throat> but music videos, like knowing how long they take and how many times you have to do a performance as someone who felt like that, like really lame, like, you know, looking like they're emotionally expressing themselves at a certain time of night when they're not necessarily feeling anything emotionally to be on a music video shooting and have somebody say, okay, you're going to have to pretend to be emotional for the next five hours over and over again. It just feels really lame and like <laughs> i just i just always had trouble like playing along maybe it's insecurity but um you know it just never came naturally to me and also for those of you who haven't been on a set before of something that's filming everything moves so slowly um and you have to do everything a million times and then you have to wait two hours for people to move a light up or down then you have to go out and do something for two hours and then wait around. It's like so not glamorous and it takes so long. And, um, you know, the only performance we knew was getting on stage, playing for 20 minutes and then getting off stage. And that was enough for us. So having to sit through these video shoots was just like unexpectedly torturous. Yeah, they don't sound fun to me, to be honest. Yeah, the long the long hours and like having to continually play multiple times, you know, or pretend play basically to yeah. a song multiple times like that yeah it does not does not sound fun so yeah i, I did wonder that's why i asked because yeah normally you get a uh it's normally yeah you know we had a nice time doing it or it's that it's like it's hell they're 12 hour days and so that 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 is interesting but going up going on to like the touring for that record what were some bands that mm-hmm. you toured with once the record came out um so well, we did Warp Tour that summer. Funny story, we we shared a bus with a band called From First to Last. <clears throat> oh, yeah. We were already pretty big at the time, and they had this singer who was a 16-year-old kid. His name was Sonny, and people from across the country would just flip out to see this band play because this kid was such a good singer. And we shared a bus with them, and um, the other guys in the band were, like, totally cool, but just Sonny was, like, the nicest guy um on the face of the planet like he gave me a t-shirt for my birthday even though i'd only known him for like a week anyway he's grown up to be skrillex and he's like a super talented (laughs) amazing guy and uh you know whenever whenever that that name comes up i always vouch for him you know and say like oh skrillex yeah that dude is is for real and like one of the nicest guys i've ever met um so we toured with them. Uh, we toured with Taking Back Sunday a bunch when they were coming up. Uh, we obviously toured with Midtown and um, just, I mean, 
you know, in the beginning, we, we would take any tour we could. And I don't know if our first booking agent and manager, like, were trying to mess with us. But they were like, we want you guys to um, become hardened on the road. So they pur- <laughs> they purposely put us on tour with all these hardcore bands. Like, there's this band I love who are on Eagle Vision called Bane. Like, I would go to all their shows as a kid all the time. But I was like, you know, like, I just don't know if their fans are going to like us at all. Um, but whatever, we got thrown on tour with them. And we just, I guess we learned how to survive on stage when there's a room full of people with their arms crossed. Um, you know, we learned that like, you got to make it work and you got to figure out how to just gain fans uh, however you can. Um, so looking back on it, I'm happy we did those those tours. But yeah, we toured with some weird, hard, metal bands back in the day and you, you do you think then then yeah at the end though that helped you because i mean and i'm thinking of that like yeah bane and armor for sleep is an is an interesting lineup so i mean at the end i guess i guess that would probably help right i mean then then playing later like if you had to open for other bands who may not particularly you know their fans may not particularly know you or be fans of your music i guess that kind of helps things but um you, yeah i mean i think it took us a while and I, I just think we needed to be out there. And I'm honestly surprised the people that like had faith in us, like our manager Gabe at the time and uh, the management company that we went with, I'm surprised they honestly um, had faith in us at the beginning because we were like super green. Um, you know, we, I, I think eventually we figured it out, but I just can't imagine nowadays, you know, people wanting to work with a band that is just like, you know, as as <laughs> new to everything as we were. So the band is gearing up for an upcoming, uh, you know, an upcoming tour. First one since 2015 for the 15th mm-hmm. anniversary of the record. Have any of the dates been affected? Or, I mean, is everything still pretty much in place and good to go? Um, so what's the date? The date is March 22nd, 2020 right now. So the first show on this tour is supposed to be uh, in mid-June. And then... It's kind of an interesting tour because it's not like one string of dates. It actually go, it spans through the summer and then through to September. Um, and, you know, for those listening in the future, we're currently uh, on like week two of this uh, basically national emergency of the coronavirus pandemic. And, um, yeah, it's, it's affecting everything. And at first... You know, two weeks ago, we were like, oh, you know, the first show is out till June. It should be fine. Um, but like the, the more and more bad news that we get, um, the more and more I think uh, the concert world is is thinking that uh, things which were safely going to happen in the summer might have to move. So, um, you know, I would think that in the next week or so we're gonna have to make a decision about if we want to just like take our chances and wait or if we want to be proactive and like safe for everyone's sake and just take things and push them back a little bit you know because it would just suck to wait and then not be able to reschedule shows and also it would suck if like we technically could play the shows but people are still so shell-shocked from this whole thing that no one comes out um so we're going to figure out what to do. I, I, I You know, it, it's tough to say because nobody can predict, like, what a safe time is for people to go to shows again. Yeah. Um, 
but um you know all we can do is is take the the best opinions of our booking agent and talk to these venues and kind of get the vibe on what things are going to be like over the summer yeah i mean that makes sense i mean i know everything is uh definitely screwy and yeah the the whole uh i'm, I'm sure summer shows it'll be interesting to see how uh, everything goes but yeah hopefully everything uh gets gets worked out either way so this is oh if, yeah it definitely will yeah so if i'm not wrong right this is the first time you guys will be playing uh together since 2015 yeah definitely and then have you uh have you started rehearsing together yet or no um we were going to um <laughs> in april <laughs> but um yeah it looks like that might not happen hmm. um but you know what there are uh you know there are remote rehearsals that we can do that um will definitely try to do but again if things get pushed back a little bit we'll we'll definitely be able to get together before then um not only that you know we we did this for so long that so much of this is like you know second nature to us it's funny that's that's exactly what i was about to ask you because i was going to say you know i mean you guys obviously you know since breaking up in 2009 you play you know you still play shows here and there and i was going to ask that like is it mo- is it mostly muscle memory now or do you ever have, have, have to go back and like relearn all together yeah i mean we definitely will and we'll definitely be you know since i'm in la and the other guys are still on the east coast um we'll definitely get together but we're gonna have to do some rehearsals uh you know on our own before we get together just to be efficient um but I find when I start playing these songs, even if I haven't listened to them for years, it just there's a part of my brain that, <laughs> uh, you know, these songs like embedded themselves and I just don't forget any part of them. You know, I mean, it, it's funny, like uh, I was listening to a podcast about um, the most common dream that people have, which I, I believe the most common dream that people have uh, is being back in school of some kind, whether it's high school or like trying to get to like class or something for me, it's always getting to stage and like, you know, being late to a show or like forgetting a (laughs) set list, you know, like I think we all did that. It's such a transformative time in our lives that those things are just like etched into our brains. (laughs) Um, That being said, we still definitely need to practice and we would suck if we didn't, you know, um, get together and rehearse. And also I want to do, you know, I think we all want to do something special for these shows. So it's not just like, here's the album. Goodbye. You know, like we want to, um, you know, have, have really good performances for everyone. So we will be, we will be rehearsing in depth. As far as uh, songs go for the upcoming tour, any ones that you're like looking most forward to playing live? Um, yeah, I mean, so we're definitely going to play the album, obviously, because this is an album tour. And then uh, we're definitely going to play additional stuff. And we were talking about um, going back and playing some songs uh, from Dream to Make Believe that actually I don't think we, we've ever played as a band, you know. Um, they're just some songs that we just we didn't have the luxury of playing because we didn't do that many headlining tours. Um, so just kind of going back and and also playing some songs over the years that have been on some, um, I don't know, that were just kind of like leaked online that, that some of our fans know, but not everyone would know that we just think would be fun to play. You know, I, I think we definitely want to have 
like a pretty large amount of songs ready to go so that we can play um, alternate set lists for people who are going to come to multiple shows. Oh, nice. We, yeah. Do you plan on playing the record in sequence or is it kind of like, I know some bands like you, you'll play the record, but it, you know, sprinkled in with those other songs. That's a good question. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of an ongoing discussion. My, my, yeah, I don't know. I feel like when, when bands do these type of things, um, the most gratifying way is to hear the album in order. I think it's just a little confusing when you bounce around, but my gut, you know, is my gut instinct is to kind of do like, um, a customized order of a set. One that includes all of the songs from the album, but not necessarily in the order that everybody knows. But I think I think we'll wind up mostly doing it in order for this tour, um, just because I think I think last time when we did it, we did more of like a sprinkling of these songs in kind of different orders every night. Uh, I think I think we might stick more to doing this album like in full in order. Nice. I, I mean, as a fan, I, I always like that more, I think. I mean, I'm always stoked anyways because like, you get to hear the album. But, yeah, I, I like yeah. it in sequence like that. I, I, yeah. I normally like when bands do that. But, you know, for you personally, kind of now, I know uh, musically, you're not you're not really doing, like, any bands, correct? You're not, like, in a band right now. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Do you, do you play or write it for fun at all still, or do you just kind of only, like, when Armor gets back together? Um... Yeah, I do. I do little things here and there. I think I needed a break for a while, and um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to put out music if you don't want to kind of like have the spotlight on you, and especially now with social media. Like, if you want to put out music, you and you know, you want more than like two people to hear it. You kind of have to be like the social media person. That's like, here's my thing. Look at me. And like, I just, I, I did that for so long and I just kind of, you know, wanted a, a break from being that guy for a while. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't like formally releasing music for uh, a long time. Um, however, yeah, I mean, I think all this almost stuff has been, really fun and it's been really cool to see the reaction that like so many of our fans um you know have been so into this tour and um it's just been really it's been cool so it definitely gets me thinking about um you know some stuff you know i i think you know i used to always think like oh you know we could only be a band if we dropped everything we we're doing in our lives and wanted to like go on tour nine months out of the year. And I just think that since things have changed with the internet and the way that music is distributed, like it doesn't necessarily have to be like that, you know? And I don't think people expect that anymore. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I've just been like kind of mulling things over in my head and, and, uh, and yeah. I, cool. I think you're right about that, though, too, that model changing. because It's funny. I was actually thinking about this just the other day because I notice a lot of bands now that are getting signed who are like, like new bands who kind of including they may be like a little like not old, but it's like maybe they're like mm-hmm. more in their late 20s, like early 30s or yeah. something. And they have like jobs and stuff. And, you know, these bands are still getting signed to labels. They tour when they can. But, yeah, it's not like a, hey, we need to gruel for, you know, nine months on the road. We have to do this huge, like, you know, press tour or anything like that. I I think you can now 
just kind of casually, you know, casually do things as you want, you know, and I, I think people don't, don't expect too much from, you know, you know, to go do that. But uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, when we came out with what to do in your den, all the albums, the album was still such a thing. And I think at the time when iTunes started selling singles, we were like, the album's dead. Like we didn't like how, you know, people devalued the album then. Cause obviously like the album meant so much to us. I think, you know, maybe my position on that has changed a little bit and that that can be advantageous to a band that wants to do things in a more unconventional way. Like I look at the way Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails releases music. You know, I think he kind of got to the point too, where he didn't want to lock himself away for three years to come out with an album of 12 songs and have people be over it in a week because of everyone's short attention spans. So he comes out with like, you know, a handful of songs, you know, a couple times a year and his fans are totally stoked about it. You know, he still puts out awesome music, but it doesn't have to be this like huge buildup for the one album. And then you're going to tour two years on that one album. You know, the formula is just changing for everyone. Oh, absolutely. No, that, that, that makes sense. I was just uh, talking to Joe, uh, the singer of Hidden in Plain View, and they just uh, mm-hmm. they just recorded some songs actually, and they don't have a label, and they don't know what they're doing with it. But he said the same thing. They're like, maybe we'll release them as singles, maybe release it as an EP. Like we don't know. Like totally. there's no model anymore. You know, when you guys started, yeah. that's the thing. Like in '05, you signed to a label. You know, you get your mm-hmm. stuff played on TV and radio. You go do all that stuff. And yeah, now it's not it's not as cut and dry. I would say. Exactly. You know, and especially like for a band that already has a fan base in place like us where you know we we don't need to scramble as much to get everyone's attention because we're under no illusions that like you know if we did do new music that we'd want to like rise to the top of the rock charts like it would basically be for the people that were already familiar with our band so you know i i think that that's kind of relieves some pressure from the whole thing oh totally and you know, kind of, kind of moving on now. I have a few uh, listener questions, sure. if you wouldn't mind. We have from uh, BTD feeling this on Twitter, and uh, kind of what we're talking about. Any plans on writing new music with Armor, or is it just the tour right now? Um, so I think a year or two ago, my answer would have been different. I think there are no specific plans right now, um, but. As I was just kind of alluding to, uh, you know, I think maybe now I'm possibly seeing some possible um, avenues where it could work, you know. And I think it's it's too early to, to say anything else, but I just I don't think it's like the same, I guess, hard no that it would have been before. Never say I never, started. basically. Never say never. There you go. Yeah. So I have another one here from at out of service fans on Twitter. And uh, they said of the following singers, they gave you a couple, uh, which would you most want to collaborate with? Shane told of Silverstein, Mark Hoppus of Blink-182, JT Woodruff of Hawthorne Heights, Dan Marcella of Story of the Year, Tyson Ritter of All American Rejects, or Andrew McMahon of Something Corporate. Of those six, who would you like to collaborate <laughs> with the most? Oh, man. There's some great people in there. Um, I mean, Shane is awesome. Uh, I, I would be stoked to do a song with Shane. I mean, he's been my friend for a long time. JT is also a great dude as well. That also kind of makes me smile to think about doing something with him. Um, 
you know, Andrew, um, so one of the songs for our last album on Smile for Them, I actually went over to his house and he, he helped me work work through the song. And actually, it was one of the songs where he heard it and he was like, honestly, he's like, I wouldn't do that much with it um, because he he liked it. And I always thought that was kind of like a big move for him to make because the, I feel like everybody as a songwriter jumps to like, oh, let me put my, my fingerprints on this. But Andrew was like, honestly, for this song, like I wouldn't do much. Um, and I've always loved Andrew as a songwriter um so also working with him would be great as well so if i had to pick one i would pick all three of them (laughs) (laughs) now actually now we have one more question and one is actually from those people uh when i mentioned that i was interviewing you jt from hawthorne heights told me to ask you if he made fun of you for bringing a baseball mitt on the 2007 project revolution tour he wants to know if he made fun of me. He asked me to mention that to you. Yes, he said that he made fun of you for bringing a baseball mitt on that tour, and uh, you said. You know what's funny is that um, I don't remember him making fun of me, but I would think that he would be one of the last people to make fun of me for that, because um, we didn't know this about Hawthorne Heights. I don't. I don't know what it is. I think being in a band, you grow up. Um, as like a musician in bands, probably in high school, thinking that like jocks suck and like we can't like sports because sports aren't cool, like music's our thing. And so I think in, in a lot of bands, that's always in the back of their heads. And Hawthorne Heights were one of the first bands that we met on tour who also really liked baseball a lot. And like, I don't, I don't think we were like, we were, um, well, our bass player was a big Yankees fan and got me to be a Yankees fan on tour. And and, like, I just remember thinking like, that's the least cool thing as a band we can do (laughs) is be a fan of baseball. But I remember we met Hawthorne Heights and they were like, oh yeah, we love baseball. Um, and I think we bonded over the fact that we liked, um, sports together. So I don't remember JT making fun of me specifically for the baseball glove, but I do think that's funny because that's something that I remember about Hawthorne Heights is like our love of baseball. That is funny then. Yeah, I don't know why I said and then he and then he uh he followed that up with uh baseball isn't punk. <laughs> Did so, he really? Yes, that I, I think that's he was mostly so funny. It, he was joking, but yeah, he was the very first yeah. person I put up on on a Facebook. I'm like, hey I'm really stoked interviewing Ben. It's like everyone got questions. Yep, that was the first one I ask him about that. Yeah, but, no, 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 that's really funny. I think I think he's saying that as a joke because he knows that they were into baseball too, and <laughs> we must have talked about it a bunch. Um, that's really funny. Yeah, JT's a good dude. So now you know we're kind of closing up here. Had a lot of fun uh, talking about this. So where can people, you know, where can people find you online? Where can they find Armor for Sleep online? You know, all, all that good stuff. Like we said, we have the uh, or you have the uh, vinyl reissue. Is that out now or is that coming out soon? Um. So. Equal Vision uh, released uh, 500 copies for sale, but those sold out like real fast. So we're trying to figure out how to get more printed. Um, however, I think all of the all of the uh, vinyl printing plants may be like closing temporarily yeah. because of this insanity too. So I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it'll be it'll be on Equal Vision's um, website, uh, which is equalvision.com, I believe, and then. For all things Armor for Sleep, you can either go to armorforsleep.com or it's at Armor for Sleep on Instagram or on Facebook. And I'm on Instagram as at Ben Jorg. So that's B-E-N-J-O-R-G. And um, 
Instagram is the only real social media that I use. I haven't tweeted in like four years. <laughs> no, that, that that's yeah. what you were saying earlier. Yeah, you're not a big uh, you're not a big. Maybe not not a big social media guy, but you're not really into being on there and you know just kind of plastering everything you're doing every second, basically. Kind of, yeah. You know, but yeah, I don't I don't like I don't like people being able to have tabs on me all the time and like know where I am and what I'm doing. <laughs> hey, I can't I can't blame you for that. I I definitely yeah. can't blame you. So you know, Ben, that was a lot of fun. And uh, right now we're gonna play a couple songs off of uh, what to what you, what to do when you were dead. Tongue tied right there. We're gonna start mm-hmm. it right now with the truth about heaven right here on the Power Chord Hour. <laughs>
right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. That was Armor for Sleep with Car Underwater, and before that was Armor for Sleep with The Truth About Heaven. I want to thank Ben Jorgensen once again for calling in. That was uh, so much fun to uh, hear. And, you know, I mean, right now things are up in the air, like we were talking about with the 15-year anniversary. Um, You know, hopefully nothing's changed, which who knows? I mean, you know, if you're listening to this day it comes out, nothing's changed. Who the hell knows? Everything going on. You could be listening to this, I mean, four days later, five days later, and maybe, maybe, you know, at that point, everything's been rescheduled. You know, everything's so weird right now. I was thinking that it would be funny because, not even funny, but almost like a documentation of kind of this moment in time because, you know, like right now everything makes sense, but it's like it'll be funny if you're listening to this, you know, in like five or six years and someone's listening and it's like all of a sudden there's a part of where we're talking about that. It's like, well, the show's supposed to happen, but the coronavirus is like, you know, it's like we may be stuck indoors. We don't know. It's like, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. It's like a little, you know, it definitely kind of documents the time that, we, uh, that we've done this interview in. But, you know, either way, they'll be touring this year, no matter what, whether it's summer or uh, fall, it's going to be a really good tour. I mean, so far, before anything's been rescheduled, like half of the dates are sold out. I forgot to mention that in the interview, but like half of the dates are sold out. The uh, the ones closest to me were already were already completely sold. So I mean, this is a this is a tour that's doing very well. And uh, I you know, if you're an Armor fan, you know they don't play a ton. So if you get the chance, like now, definitely go see them later on on this reunion tour. And either way, no matter what, you know, if you're holed up inside, go check out that "What to Do When You Are Dead" 15 year anniversary repress. Uh, you know, a bunch of demos and uh, B-sides, unreleased stuff on there. It is really, really cool. Um, who knows? You know, that's another one with the variants. Like you said, a lot of those sold out already, and who knows with vinyl. You know, it's all weird right now, but still, um, you know, go check that out on the Equal Vision, on Equal Vision Records website, kind of get more of an idea for it. But, uh, yeah, go do that. Go follow them, all that good stuff. And, you know, just go spin, go spin what to do when you're dead to celebrate the 15 years. It's such a good record. Um, you know, it, it really is like I told him, it's like, it doesn't sound like 2005. It sounds like a timeless rock record. You know, I, I, I think it, I think it ended up paying off that they didn't just work with a producer that, you know, everyone else in the scene was working with at the time. I, I, I think that, uh, I really do think that benefited them in the long run. So thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the podcast. Tune in next week. We'll be doing the uh, March rundown. Crazy. I think we're already at the end of another month going into uh, April. It, it, it's insane that we've been doing this uh, podcast now for uh, four months you know, absolutely insane to me. I'm loving it though. Thank you so much for checking it out and uh, stay connected with the show. We're at Power Chord Hour on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Please go follow us. We'd love if you did. And uh, we're also on YouTube. Maybe you're listening to this on YouTube. You can go check that out there and all our past podcasts and all our old interviews too. You know, only four months into this, but we're four years into the radio show. So uh, there's interviews all over that thing going back to my very first one in 2016. You can hear it all there. We're also on Spotify. I put up a playlist of everything that I play on the radio show each week. And uh, you can also check that out. It airs every Friday night at 10 Eastern on 107.9 WFA in Jamestown, New York. But if you don't live there, don't fret. You can listen to it from anywhere in the world on WRFA's website. Just go to WRFALP.com and uh, you can stream the station there. And also WRFA has a mobile app for iPhone only, no Android yet. So just go to the app store if you got an iPhone search. Just search WRFA and you'll find the mobile app there. And on there you can stream the station as well. And, uh, you know, if you got any song requests, you want to hit me up, I have free Power Chord Hour pins. I'd love to send you some. Hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. Also hit me up if you remember 
if you remember the uh, the car underwater commercial, or if you remember the Ohio's for Lovers ringtone commercial, and uh, if for some reason I'm not crazy and Fall Out Boy did play Mad TV and you also remember that, please let me know as well, all at powercordhour@gmail.com. We will be back next week uh, doing a whole rundown on the month of March, playing you some of the music that came out, letting you know about the releases, music news, all that good stuff. So uh, check it out next week. And for the Power Chord Hour, I'm Anthony Merchant. Thanks for listening.